TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This year is the 10th anniversary of the podcast, 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Julia Tertian about cooking and writing. I need both, and cooking for me is a very physical activity, and writing is a really cerebral one. She also explains how to successfully peel a hard-boiled egg. You have to use an old egg. (laughs) Here's Debbie Millman. Julia Tertian has produced TV programs about food, She has hosted podcasts about food. She has blogged about food. She's been a private chef. She's written books on food with Mario Batali and Gwyneth Paltrow. And two of her own food books are in the publishing pipeline. So I guess you could safely say that Julia Tertian is really into food, professionally and personally. She's here to tell us about how she's made a career making it and writing and talking about it. Julia Tertian, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so much for having me. Julia, I understand you've been passionate about food since before you can remember. I read that you were scrambling eggs in pre-kindergarten, making Thanksgiving dinner at the age of 12. And when you were about five or six, you gave your first cooking class to your great-grandmother Nanny and her friends in North Miami. This is very accurate. All true? Wow. All true. There's a picture. I'll have to send it to you of me demonstrating the fruit salad because I thought maybe they don't know how to do that. So that was the lesson you were making for you, teaching the mm-hmm. great-grandmothers how to make fruit salad. There was my great-grandmother, who I was very lucky to know for the very early part of my life. She lived in this kind of hysterical apartment building in North Miami Beach with all of her friends, and they were all in different apartments. And so when I have an older brother, and when we would visit or my cousins or anyone, the whole thing was you would give a demonstration to Nanny and her friends. And I think all grandchildren and great-grandchildren would do that. And so most people would, like, sing a song they knew at camp or something. Or for me, it was how to make fruit salad. <laughs> and was there a special recipe to the fruit salad? I think it was, it was more – I think it was, like, a technique. I think maybe there was a melon ball. <laughs> I'm not really sure. But <laughs> I have to look. 
And is it also true that you have a tattoo of a loaf of bread? That is true. And yeah. where, where, where do you it's have right. it? It's right. I can show it to you. It's not in a weird place. It's right on my... Um, Oh, very nice. What do you call this? My forearm? Your I guess. forearm, right by the crook of your arm, mm-hmm. right? It's often mistaken for a mailbox, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you were born and raised in New York. Your parents were in the publishing business. Mm-hmm. What exactly did they do? Both my parents were in magazines for a really long time. My mom was an art director, and she hired my dad as a graphic designer. Ooh. And that's how they met, so, which was a fun story. And they both continued to work in different capacities in the magazine world. My dad mostly as an art director and a freelance book designer, which he now does full-time. And my mom as art director and then an editor now works sort of on branding for all sorts of companies and stuff, so in the family. I read that you took a course in catering Mm -hmm. at the new school in the summer after your 10th grade in middle school. So is that how you learned to cook in the first place? No, I had I signed up for the class because I, I had already loved to cook. And I think at the time, I don't know if the course was before or after I started, which I'll call in quotes, um, my first business, which was my own catering company, which meant cooking for, like, family birthday parties. And, and how old stuff. were you at this point? Like, I don't know, 15 or something. But my dad made me business cards. I still have one. <laughs> and I took myself very seriously. But I, it was kind of one of those summers where it was – I went to this kind of fancy private school where there was a lot of pressure about college and stuff. And so everyone was doing these, like, Habitat for Humanity over the summer and activities like that. And there was a lot of focus on what you could do for your college resume, which I thought was just like so much kind of unnecessary stress. So I thought, what would I love to do? And it turned out what I would love to do is spend my time with people at that moment, like two or three times my age, learning about catering. And on the first day of class, I'll never forget this, the woman who was instructing the class said, if people in your life give you a hard time for how many lists you make, you found the right place. And I thought, like, I'm with my people. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about catering and cooking that makes it conducive to lists or list making? Oh, my God. Cooking, especially for a large number of people, which I actually don't do a lot of anymore, is very conducive to organization. And it's a lot easier if you are organized and I feel like as I've gotten older, I've become a little bit less organized, which has made me a more relaxed person. (laughs) But when I was in middle school and high school, and then I would say through college, I think I had a lot of anxiety that I would channel into all sorts of lists, which were great because it would mean I would end up with like a great dinner or a party on the other end of it. So it was a kind of a way to channel all of that. It's so remarkable to meet somebody that seems to have known why they were put on this earth at such a young age. I read that in 2002, when you were 16, when you were a 16-year-old high school student, you were interviewed for a New York Times article about the publication Cooks Illustrated, which you'd apparently been reading at that time for three years, so since you'd been 13. And when asked why you read the magazine, you stated very authoritatively, You trust what they tell you. You can tell that they want every person to be able to make food that is simple and uncomplicated perfection. So two questions, Julia. (laughs) How did the New York Times find you at 16, a reader of Cook's Illustrated? And did the magazine influence your approach, your subsequent approach to cooking and food? You've really done your homework. (laughs) Um, David Carr actually wrote that piece, the late, great David Carr. David Carr. Um, And... 
I think he had contacted some friend of my mom's to see if they knew someone who read the magazine. And she said, actually, I do. And she's this teenager in Westchester. And that was kind of it. And it was like one phone call. But Cook's Illustrated, I think, is the most rigorous of the food magazines. And I would say it's influenced me less as a cook and more as a recipe tester. I think that they are just the most thorough in the best way possible. And I mean, this word is a compliment, like the nerdiest of the nerds and really dig deep and try every single possibility. And I just am so glad that there's a publication that has that kind of that's raised the bar for that part of the food industry and maintains it. So I think that's And so you're still great. reading it avidly? Oh, yeah. And... I think it's like, I feel like as a recipe tester, like I'm grateful they do a lot of the, you know, they figure a lot of things out so you don't have to, which is sort of an amazing resource. Julia, you are so much more than a recipe tester, but we'll get to that <laughs> in a moment. I only want to ask you a couple of more growing up questions, oh, sure, only because yeah. I'm so fascinated by your <laughs> commitment to your craft from such an early age. I read that you always loved and coveted cookbooks, mm-hmm. and that when you were a kid, you couldn't fall asleep before reading a cookbook in bed. And I understand that your mom used to send you issues of Gourmet Magazine to your sleepaway camp, yet you studied poetry mm-hmm. and sculpture at Barnard, where you went to college. And I read that you briefly dabbled in the harmonica as well. <laughs> <laughs> but why did you decide to go for a liberal arts education versus going straight into culinary school at that time? I feel like I need to revisit the harmonica. Um, <laughs> I it's, it's an interesting question because I do feel so unbelievably fortunate that I've known what this thing is that I love to do my oh, whole life. Oh, you are so lucky. And I feel even more fortunate that I grew up in a family where that was so supported and encouraged to the point where I think my parents, the assumption was I would go to culinary school and I would open a restaurant and that seemed like a linear path for someone who was interested in food. That has never been the career I wanted to have. And so when it came time to, you know, think about college and stuff, I, you know, I loved food, I loved cooking, but I also loved being a student and I particularly loved writing and growing up with parents and publishing, that always felt like something that would have some part in my life. And it felt like a really comfortable place for me to exist. My mom took me to Barnard on a college tour because it was nearby where we lived so I could see what a college tour was like. And I was like, well, we're done. Like, (laughs) I know where I want to go to school. Are you really that easy to please? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like like when you know, you know. So it was I I mean, I could talk about Barnard for an hour for the whole show. I mean, I just loved it. And it was kind of similarly a place where I think your passions were really supported. And I always felt like if I studied English and studied writing and specifically poetry, if I knew how to communicate effectively, I could do anything. I already knew how to cook. I didn't want to go to culinary school. I wanted to really learn to be kind of a more well-rounded communicator. So what about the sculpture aspect? (laughs) The best part about sculpture is it's how I met my best friend, Yvonne, from college. And he and I were in the same sculpture class. That was really because going to Barnard means you have full access to Columbia, which is kind of a great thing. And so for an extracurricular activity, I thought, when else am I going to have access to this huge sculpture studio and, like, learn how to weld metal and all these things that I've never done again, but I'm really glad that I learned how to do. So that was just pure fun. But I actually do think... Both, it's funny you bring it up. I think both sculpture and poetry influence a lot about how I construct recipes and cookbooks and things like that. In what way? I have this whole theory about poetry, about writing recipes, because I think 
maybe it's how I justify spending a fortune on a college education about poetry. Um, but I think writing a recipe and writing a poem are very similar. I think you're trying to convey this idea of something as economically as possible. You're trying to get the point across and give your reader in both places, you know, enough information to get it. Because you can really, in a recipe, go on and on. You could write a whole book about how to, you know, bake a cake or even scramble an egg or something. Like if you really get into nuances and you're trying to just stick to the page. And to me, it's the same thing in poetry. And, and hopefully reading a recipe has the same effect, which is, you know, it really brings something to life. It makes you want to get in the kitchen. So And transports you. Yeah. What made you decide to start working as a recipe tester? I know that you got this extraordinary job to be an assistant on a book that would be a compliment to a show that Mario Batali <laughs> created called Spain on the Road Again. But what, what gave you the motivation or the impetus to start as a, a recipe tester as opposed to a sous chef? You know, there's so many jobs in the food industry that I don't think are that obvious to people who aren't in the industry all the time. And it's something that I love to talk about because I think there's there's a lot of roads in this kind of small world that you can take. And I was really introduced to the concept of recipe testing when I was in high school because my dad, for the short period of time when Rosie O'Donnell had a magazine, he was her art director. Um, and that was the Red Book magazine yeah, that turned exactly. into Rosie. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And I went to high school in Westchester, I would take the train into New York City like as often as I could. I would meet my dad at his office, which at that point was across the street from Grand Central, and I would hang out in his office, which meant for me hanging out in the test kitchen, which I, up until that point, like didn't even know that was like really a thing. And there's this amazing man there, Frank, who tested all the recipes, who ran the test kitchen, who kind of took me as his intern. You know, I think he was very generous because I was this guy's daughter just hanging out, but I was like, put me to work. And he really taught me how to test recipes and taught me that this was a life you could have and, you know, a career you could have. And I was always trying to, you know, if something in a recipe said it should be sliced thinly, I would try to show off to Frank and slice it as thinly as I could so you could see through it. And then he was like, you know, this is, we're testing recipes for home cooks. Like, you don't have to impress me. Just show me how you would do it, like at home. And that's always stayed with me. So that was really kind of my entry point. How exactly do you go about testing a recipe? That is a great question because there's not really a definitive answer to it. To me, it's different based on what recipe I'm working on and whether I'm helping someone write their own recipe based on something they cook or if I'm taking an already existing recipe and kind of developing it or if I'm testing my own. It all comes down to for me, I write the recipe. I print it out. I'll just take you through the logistics. Please, I, print, yes. I print it out. I take out all of my measuring cups and spoons and scales and all the things I don't actually use when I'm cooking, but I use when I'm testing. And I follow the recipe to the letter as if I were making it as a first-time cook at home without any previous experience on that particular recipe. And as I'm working on it and testing it, I am taking notes constantly and so I just go through it and you go through one at a time and a few of them you have to make over and over until they're right. And it's hard with testing recipes because you're not just making dinner. You're trying to make the best possible version of what this thing is. It's this really technical undertaking, but I really work on home cook recipes. So I try to be as relaxed about it as possible. If you were making spaghetti and meatballs and the meatballs had a list of ingredients 
if you made the meatballs and then tested and tasted the meatballs after they were created and realized there was too much salt or there was too much pork, how do you know how to adjust mm-hmm. to get the right combination so you only have to make it one more time? Or is it really just a crapshoot and you make it over and over and over and over again? I think, I mean, first, there's no such thing as too much pork. <laughs> um, <laughs> Bravo. <but laughs> I think it it comes down to just experience and have it. You know, at this point, I've made meatballs like so many times, but I also work on recipes I've never worked on before. So it's it's really about going into the testing as informed as possible and trying to guess what things I'll be troubleshooting anyway. And certain things you can adjust on the spot and certain things you do have to make again. Like a, a meatball is a good example. I'll make the mixture. I'll cook off a little bit. And if it doesn't taste right, then I'll add more salt to the whole thing and try it. See, I was imagining you making this like giant over and pot over. of meatballs yeah. and spaghetti, bringing yeah. it to the table, testing it and saying, hmm, needs more salt. Yeah. Time to make it again. It do- that happens all the time with baking recipes because you can, you can you know, taste a batter or a dough or something before it goes in the oven, but there's no real way to totally see how something's going to come out until it comes out of the oven. So baking recipes are the ones that I usually end up testing a few times over. I always want to nail it the first time, but I never do. So I've just come to be pretty calm about that. So the job that really set your career on a path was the project with Mario Batali, mm-hmm. which was the Spain on the Road Again trip and companion book. Can you talk a little bit about what your role was? Sure, yeah. That all happened through someone who I considered to be one of my biggest supporters and mentors. That is a man named Charlie Pinsky, who was behind the show, who produced it and directed it. And like so many things go, it all goes a little bit back to nepotism and his family and my family have gone back many generations. And he has been a longtime producer of food television shows. And when I went to college on the Upper West Side, he lived on the Upper West Side. And I pretty much literally knocked on his door and said, you know, I really I want to live in this world that you live in. And, you know, is there anything I can take off your plate to make that happen? (laughs) So I, I worked for him part time during college. After college, the timing was one of those very serendipitous things, and I graduated in the spring. He had been putting together everything for that show, and the plane to Madrid left in the fall, and he basically took me along and said, we'll figure out something for you to do. And so at that point, you didn't know you you were going to be working on the accompanying cookbook? Yeah, I mean, I, I was brought on pretty much like as a writing assistant and just to kind of be there and take notes. And I had just... Poetry yeah, really came in handy. Yeah, and I had just come out of college being, you know, like a, an English major. I had kind of no idea what I was doing there, but I really knew how to take notes. <laughs> um, and those notes just slowly became the book. And I had never worked from start to finish on a cookbook before, and I had helped people part-time doing like research for cookbooks and some recipe testing at that point, but I had never helped put the whole thing together, and I realized it was just like anything else. It was like one paragraph at a time, and so I just kept recording, like literally in notebooks by hand, what was going on, and I would then in between shoots, I would type up those notes, and that document became kind of the jumping off point for the book, so. What was the biggest thing you learned from Mario Batali? Just he is like the last one to go to bed and the first one to get up and just packs in so much in a day. It's unbelievable. Like, I mean, I needed like a month to recover from that trip. (laughs) It was just so much material and experience and everything. So 
And so you ended up working on the actual on the book, cookbook yeah. itself. Mm-hmm. What are the ingredients of a good cookbook, so to speak? Mm. I would say just a really good point of view and a very clear voice. And that was actually an interesting issue with that, or not an issue, but just a challenge with that book, because that show was hosted not only by Mario, but also by Mark Bittman and Gwyneth Paltrow and a really great Spanish actress, Claudia Basols. And you know, deciding whose voice would narrate the book and whose perspective it would come from. And for many reasons, it made sense for that to be Mario. And so navigating the voice was important for the book as it is in every book. You know, I love food more than anything. It's narrated my whole life, but I actually like, I mean, I'll eat anything. I'm pretty easy to please. So I think the food is obviously really important, but the stories behind the food are even more important. You can find a recipe or write one for just about anything, but having a really great story and a reason for it being there, that to me is the most important. In looking at many of the cookbooks that you've co-written and contributed to, I sensed a real soul to the recipes and to the way that they're presented and the respect that both the food as well as the cook is experiencing or or what you're hoping that they experience by bringing these two things together. Now that you're a professional cook and writer, (laughs) do you consider yourself better at one than another? Or do you see them part of the same skill set in some way? Well, first, thank you. That's definitely what I aim for. So it's it's nice to feel like that comes through in the work. Um, I think for me, being, you know, I don't place one before the other, being a cook or being a writer. I think I write about food. And I mean, I guess I'd, I'd, I bill myself as a writer before I bill myself as a cook, but I have to cook. Really? For what, yeah. I would never have imagined that. I but, would have absolutely yeah. thought it was the other way around. I think that's something I've come to more recently, though. Yeah, I think lately I've been saying I'm a writer, but they're in tandem for me, and I can't imagine not doing either. But I also can't imagine doing either full-time. I need both, and cooking for me is a very physical activity, and writing is a really cerebral one, and I think being 100% either of those things I would have a hard time with. So, After your project Spain on the Road Again, Gwyneth Paltrow hired you to work testing recipes for her first cookbook in which you were not credited on the cover. But you were credited on the cover in her second book, It's All Good. In the foreword of that book, you wrote that this way of cooking, her way of cooking in the book, and eating changed your relationship with food, simultaneously making you smaller and your world bigger. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on this a little bit. Sure, yeah. Um, It's All Good is just a book that I think the title kind of says it all. Everything in that book is you know, not only delicious, but also very good for you. And it all comes from a very healthy perspective. And working on that book and even working towards working on that book meant really paying much more attention, not just to the things I wanted to eat, but also how they made me feel. And that transition and that attention to all that really totally transformed what I eat and how I eat. And it's with a lot more attention to how it makes me feel afterwards, not just during the act of eating itself. Yeah, during the course of writing that book, I did. I, I kind of, I've had sort of a lifelong up and down weight thing that goes back many generations in my family. Um, Don't we all? Yeah. And, um, <laughs> Except Gwyneth. <laughs> and it was really at that point in my life where things just became a lot more steady. And I feel like I lost weight and, I, and it didn't come back immediately. And that also started to not 
pardon the pun, but carry so much weight anymore. And I just realized I wasn't as driven by being like what my life would look like in 20 pounds. It was more like, how do I feel when I'm eating this way? And that's been a really great gift. I feel a lot less stressed out about how I look and all those kinds of things. And it's much more about how do I feel? And I've learned that I feel pretty great if I take the time to take care of myself. So It feels quite remarkable to consider the possibility that you might resent the very thing that you love. And as I was thinking about this, I realized how many people really do resent the very thing that they love if the thing that they love isn't quite loving them back the way that they want to be, whether it be a job, a a piece of writing, a person, (laughs) any number of things. How did you manage to get through those demons? I mean, it involved a lot of just kind of self-awareness and like even journaling and just doing things that would really make me be aware of myself and my behaviors. It took therapy. It took all sorts of different tools. And it, I think more than anything, it, it required being open to getting tools I didn't have and acknowledging ones I didn't have, being open to finding them and being open to using them. I feel like it all kind of and continues to. It's not like this was something in the past. This is something I I feel like I work on and towards every day. I think untangling desire is a really tricky and interesting thing. And I think how do you do that? I, mean, I, I feel like I'll, I'll let you know if I, if I really figure it <laughs> There's out. There's a book but, in there, Julia. Yeah. There's a book in there. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting. I think sometimes really identifying what you really want, which is a very fun thing to do in the world of food, but also has much bigger implications. But identifying what you want also often means identifying what you don't have or what you would like more of or, you know, it brings up all sorts of things. I want to share a passage from an article that you wrote in Vogue about your relationship with food and your relationship with your body. And I, in many ways, felt like I could have written it myself. That's how much it felt familiar and ripe for sharing. You wrote, A year ago, I got undressed in the locker room at my gym. Already there are two significant things about this story. First, I not only joined a gym, but I went to it. Second, I got undressed in front of other people. I know women do this kind of thing all the time, but it took me 27 and a half years to disrobe in public without an oversized t-shirt to act as a dressing tent or huddling in a bathroom stall. It was the first time I saw my body as a wonderful thing to live in. Julia, this has to be a book because I'm I'm 53 and still going through this. At least you got it at 27 and a half. How did you get to this place? How did you get to this wonderful new place where you could see your body as this wonderful thing? It's so funny. I feel like you, I mean, I, I spent so long working on that article, but so much in the privacy of my own home. And then for that to let alone be out there, but to have you read it back to me is like a very surreal thing. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, no, it's wonderful. It's I think I think actually that has a lot to do with it. I think it's being willing to make the private public. It goes back to even talking about, you know, cookbooks and recipes and finding the stories that are worth sharing. And that to me seemed like this kind of universal experience, as you were mentioning. And for me, the more comfortable I am in sharing things, the easier a time I have kind of getting over them. I feel like I spend a lot of time in my own head and the more willing I am to make that conversation a little bit louder 
it's it's very beneficial for me on a personal level, and hopefully it connects with other people in some way. But anyway, back to your question, getting to that point, that all came from that same desire just to be happier. I think carrying around the kind of anxiety that comes with being, whether it's ashamed of your weight or anything. Just shame, period. Yeah, it's just, it's a lot to carry around. And I felt like I wasn't even that old and I was already feeling burdened by carrying the stuff around. I think it also helps to put things in perspective and realize, you know, my problems in comparison to a lot of people in the world are like slim. It's <laughs> <laughs> a weird choice of word. <laughs> um, and so choosing to really be proactive and getting over that and knowing that I wouldn't get over that or through it, you know, no one else could do that for me. That was something, that was a decision I had to make. Bravo. <laughs> Bravo. You. February 2011, you began writing for Design Sponge, the incredible website founded by Grace Bonney. How did you first meet Grace? Um, Grace, Grace, Grace. February 2011 was, I believe, I guess I was interviewed for Design Sponge, and I had known a lot about Design Sponge before, and I had followed it just like many people do. And being asked to be interviewed for it was just this great experience of learning a little bit more about the kind of spectacular community and audience that Grace has built on the Internet. And, it, you know, it was a very simple, straightforward interview. But I got the most positive responses from that and felt like she had made this kind of incredible world that existed in this very ethereal place. And so that's when I started, I guess, to pay more attention to Design Sponge. And I bought her book, and I continued to read her site, and then I married her. So, <laughs> that was that. so in 2013, yeah. you and Grace got married. Mm-hmm. Was it love at first sight back in 2011? How, how long did oh, it take we, for you both to figure out that this was it? We didn't actually meet then. That was just when I think oh, we became more, okay. I guess, aware of each other. Right. Um, and then Grace in June of 2013... Um, so it was a couple of years afterwards, wrote just a very beautiful coming out post on her site. And at that point, I had long admired her just professionally. I didn't know that, you know, she was potentially available. So I, <laughs> and I hope she doesn't mind me telling this, but I don't think she will. She, so I read her post and thought I had nothing to lose. And so I wrote her an email and essentially asked her out. And she, and then we wrote back and forth kind of nonstop for like a week. We had dinner a week later and we got married four months later. Wow. Oh, what a wonderful romance. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of food did you have at your wedding? Um, We had a teeny tiny wedding. It was like a dozen people. um, And I had worked on the Bouvette book, which had come out that year. And so we rented the back table at Bouvette and Jody Williams, Williams, who runs Bouvette, made us dinner and it it was perfect. What did she make you? It, it's, it was funny because at first, because we knew we wanted to have this very small wedding, so I thought, well, it's it's a dozen people. Like, that's not so bad. Like, I'll make dinner. And then Grace was like, let's just, you know, let someone else do that for one night. So I really thought, like, on this very special occasion, like, whose food would I just love to have? And, I mean, Jody was kind of the only answer. And I love Bouvette, and I love Jody and I love her food. And so when we got there, she had kind of laid the table with beautiful sliced meats and pâtés and pickles and cheese and all that kind of stuff. So that was kind of just there and beautiful vegetables and like leeks and vinaigrette and all that kind of stuff. And then we all got really full really quickly. And then the main course came, um, (laughs) which was like perfect roast chicken. And then she makes these potatoes that are basically 
like half potatoes and half cheese. Um, mm. It's the kind of thing where if you like put your spoon in the pot and kind of pick it up, it'll just keep going until you stop. And so we had that. And then at Bouvette, there are two desserts on the menu. There's tart to tan or chocolate mousse. And so there's a big vat of chocolate mousse. And then my best friend Cleo, who was there, made us a coconut cake, which is my favorite. So it was, it was pretty perfect. That sounds magnificent. I understand that you once bought a truffle out of the back of a car and that you were also an expert at smuggling veganese, veganese, yeah. veganese across the pond. Do you plan on telling any of these stories when your own cookbook, Small Victories, comes out next year? I feel like a lot of those were, and they were for different clients, um, a lot of those happened in my private chef days. Basically, my, my own cookbook is all about home cooking from a home cook. But I used to work a lot as a private chef, so I have a lot of experience working in different people's homes. And so a lot of those experiences will come through in the book. But I think neither of the illicit stories have made the cut <laughs> quite yet. Julia, how would you describe your personal cooking style? I would say it's pretty eclectic. It's not one cuisine by any means. It's all really simple and it's all very doable. And so you'll be sharing this in Small Victories. Mm -hmm. Why the title Small Victories? Because the book comes down to, um, it's a collection of recipes and each is introduced by what I'm calling a small victory, which is kind of like a tip or a technique that informs some part of that recipe. For example? For example, like getting the seeds out of a pomegranate without making a mess or how to effectively peel a hard-boiled egg without you know, when the white comes off in the shell. Can you share that now? You have to use an old egg. <laughs> <laughs> I t I, there's like so many tips on like you boil them this long, then you chill them, and then you reboil, and then or you, if you add vinegar or like there's a billion. And I've tried them all, and it always works if I'm using older eggs. Like, so older meaning how old? Like ones you bought like two weeks ago. Really? Yeah. And they're still okay to eat? Totally. Yeah. Eggs, <laughs> eggs last for a really long time, and I just find... Older eggs just are easier to peel, and it's so that to me is like a small victory. Absolutely. Um, so a then, giant victory. so then the recipe will come after that kind of tip or technique that's explained within a story, and then following the recipe, there's a bunch of spin-offs. So the idea is once you've mastered the small victory, you can not only make the main recipe, you can make any number of things. So it's all about trying to feel a little bit more empowered in the kitchen. You will be including some family recipes, mm -hmm. from what I understand, in Small Victories. For example, you are including your Aunt Renee's chicken soup and what you are calling best rice pilaf with roasted red cabbage, which you created, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, you created in an effort to replicate the salty, buttery flavor of rice aroni. Correct. That's accurate. Yeah. <laughs> which you said has taken you a lifetime to do. How were you able to do that and why rice aroni? What is it about rice aroni I, that you like so much? I grew, So growing up, uh, my family was very lucky. We had a woman, Jenny Davis, who worked for my family for a very long time, who was like my babysitter from the age of three until I was in high school. I'm still very close to, and Jenny used to cook all the time, and her go-to was rice aroni and Stouffer's stovetop stuffing. Both those things have, like, these just huge amounts of flavor in the packages, <laughs> um, and it's what I grew up eating, and I loved it, and I would ask Jenny to make these things all the time, and as I've gotten older and a little bit more aware of trying to avoid ingredients I can't pronounce and things like that, my love for rice and stovetop stuffing hasn't declined, but, you know, I'm a little bit weary of 
eating those things on a more regular basis. So <laughs> the rice pilaf has roasted cabbage in it, which gets very, it, it doesn't sound like that special of a thing, but it gives like the most amazing rich flavor to this. And then it gets quite a bit of salt and butter and, you know, all those things that I guess aren't great for you, but are better than Oh, it sounds so things. yummy. Yeah. It's so yummy. If you were suddenly asked to make dinner for your friends tonight, mm. what would it be? Um, just logistically speaking, because I'm going to get back on the bus tonight to go upstate. So I'd probably call Grace and ask her to pick up maybe a chicken and some vegetables and make like a roast chicken and vegetables. And I would make her make mashed potatoes because hers are great. And what I makes them so great? Butter. So much <laughs> butter. Yeah. She's from the South, so she's not afraid. <laughs> and how do you like to roast your chicken? Pretty high temperature, like 425. I'd like to as much as possible, bring it to room temperature before it goes in the oven so that it cooks evenly. And then salt, pepper, olive oil. To me, that's all you need, but I'm happy to add other things like lemon and herbs and stuff. And then don't do any, just put it in there and leave it and take it out when it's done. That's it. The last thing I want to talk to you about is the great piece of advice you received from Mario Batali when you were working on Spain, a culinary road trip. You were walking with him in Mallorca, waiting for the crew to set up a shot, and you took the opportunity to talk to him about a few recipes. You were standing on the edge of a cliff by the water, and it was astonishingly beautiful, and you were getting to talk to Mario about food for the book that you were writing together. What happened next? He told me something that I think about on a daily basis, and I have no idea if he would remember any of this, Um, but he... You know, we were standing there talking about this book, um, which just seemed like work, but we were in this, like, very breathtakingly beautiful place, and it just felt like we were very lucky to be there as we were. So he just kind of interrupted in the middle of this conversation and just said, always choose joy, and that's kind of how I've chosen to to go. So Always choose joy. Mm-hmm. I think it's the best advice I've ever gotten. Julia Tertian, thank you so much for coming on thank you. today. Thank you so much. To find out more about what Julia Tertian is up to, go to her website, juliatertian.com. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainy Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.